Amen. If you have a Bible, we're in Romans 12. We will pick back up uh, where we left off last week. We are in a chapter all about sanctification, a section of the Bible all about sanctification, which is really the, the last section in the book of Romans. We've talked about condemnation. We've talked about justification, unification, and now we are moving into sanctification. And just as all three previous sections apply to everyone, this one does too. We may think that once we get to uh, being united with Christ, once we're saved. That's it. That's the finish line. We're good to go. But there is something left for us yet. There is another step to take. And and really, there are several more steps for us to take because sanctification is not just a one-time thing. It is a lifelong process, which is what we'll talk about plenty tonight. And we'll talk specifically uh, about the goal of sanctification as we finish up this chapter today. So what we're going to do is we're going to look back at a few things that we missed from the first section of Romans 12, uh, a couple ideas and themes and keys that I think are essential for us understanding what sanctification is all about and how it actually is is, is accomplished in us. Uh, And then we'll move forward and we'll get into uh, some very, very, very practical teaching. Remember last week we talked about this. Uh, the, the first part of Romans is very theological uh, heavy. Uh, it, it, it's, it's ideas, it's doctrines. Uh, but the last few chapters of Romans is very practical as in it just simply says you should do this and here's how to do it and here's what to do. So really no murkiness, no fogginess, uh, no, 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 uh, nowhere for us to hide, if you will, for in these last few chapters. So Romans 12 is going to call every Christian to realize our full potential as followers of Jesus. And, and come on, don't you want to be as close to Jesus as you can be? Don't you want to be the, 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 the I don't know, best Christian? Is, it's kind of a weird way to say it because, you know, we're in Christ, we're, we're all equal. But don't you want to be the most devoted Christian that you can be possibly? And, and if you do, and I think all of you do, you wouldn't be here if you didn't. Romans 12 is the gate that you must walk through. It is the, 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 the pasture that you must graze in if you're going to get to your full potential in Christ. And it may surprise you what Romans 12 actually says is that full potential, realize. But if you want to be the closest you can be and the most on mission as you can be, Romans 12 is a must read and a must practice chapter. Uh, There's not many chapters I would even put on the same level in terms of things that we must do and things that we must know. So Romans 12 is that kind of chapter. We, We talked about last week that it's not an option. It's where God is leading every Christian. Having been saved, having been made holy and acceptable to God, we should want more. We should, we, we, we will all, we will want more that, you know, that we always talk about how Christians will, you know, you should want to, and, you, and there's something in you that desires it. And, and I think that, that it's a given. If you are in Christ, if you have been saved, you will want what Romans 12 has to offer. So here's where sanctification really starts, the, the conversation starts from. Salvation is not a one-time antidote for forgiveness. Of course, it is an antidote for forgiveness. It does forgive us instantaneously, once and for all, at the moment that we believe. Salvation is that one-time you know, uh, uh, forgiveness uh, of sins, but it's not just that. It's not only that. It's not just a one-time antidote for forgiveness. It is an internal reservoir unto sanctification that God puts something in us, a new spirit in us, a new heart within us that is literally constantly replenishing us and directing us in a new direction. And that is what produces sanctification, which is to be made holy, to be made more 
whole. Uh, and, and Jesus talked about this with the woman at the well. She was fooling around with the religion and she told Jesus that she had tried out religion at this mountain. They worshiped this God and, you know, the Jews worship at the temple. And, and, and Jesus told her, listen, if you keep doing this religious routine, you're going to come back every day looking for something to, to get you to the starting line. But if you come to me, I, I won't just give you a starting line. I will take you far beyond that. He said in John 14, 4, that whoever drinks the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again, as in you'll never have to question, am I saved? Am I justified? Am I united with God? Obviously you will be, but not just will you be saved, but the water that I will give you will become in you a spring of water welling up unto eternal life, as in it's a constant reservoir that is filling up and replenishing you to where God wants to take you. He said the same thing later on in John 7, at the temple or something similar to that. John 7, verse 37. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. So there's, that, there's this constant flow from our hearts, the spirit of God moving through us, changing us. So you know what's awesome about this, and, and I hope that you, you, you pick up on this. What's awesome is this isn't something that has to be worked up by a service, that this is not contingent, that you're, you're, you're finding the way that God wants you to take and you being sanctified is not dependent on a great Sunday service, which I hope all of them are great, but even if they're not, that your sanctification and this water welling up in you, this is not something that has to be worked up by music or worked up by a good sermon. This is not something that you have to feel like doing. This is not an emotional thing. This is something that God is actually actively working within you and working on you regarding. God is working. Now, when his word is preached, when you read his word, when inspired word, when his inspired word is active in songs or sermons, he is using that to get a hold of our hearts and minds and stir us up through his truth. But if, we're our, if we are believers and if you are saved, we can have confidence that God is a hands-on God. He is present and active in our lives. So the good news is, whether you feel like it or not, whether you've been worked up or whether you've been pumped up or not, God is active, God is hands-on, God is present, and he's constantly showing you where he wants to take you and guiding you. And if you're a Christian, if you're a Christian and you somehow managed to completely shut yourself off from church and, and from the Bible, then I believe God's going to move heaven and earth to get your attention, to get you back in those places, to get you back under his word. And if you are a Christian and you're in the places that you should be and you have a devotion to God and you're reading the Bible and you're going to church and you're focusing on these things, then you can't get away from God's sanctifying spirit because he is in his word. He's through his spirit, always trying to get you to that next step. So there's no way for a Christian to be, to, to be separated from this and to be disconnected from this reality where God wants to take you to that next step. So it's highly unlikely that anyone who is born again, who's following Jesus, uh, that, that we're not under the word in some way, shape or form. In Romans 12, specifically the, the first two verses where Paul beseeches us or begs us or pleads with us to present ourselves as a living sacrifice. Those kind of verses in Romans, 1, Romans 12, 1 and 2 are, are, are two big ones, but they're all over the New Testament. We're, we're being invited to and we're being beckoned to come to God as a living sacrifice to be transformed by our minds being renewed by the word of God that is saying, this is where I want to take you. So these verses get our attention. 
They, uh, they, they are designed to sanctify us and to start that process and continue that process. Every Christian is being progressively sanctified. Progressive sanctification is the idea. Progressive means it's ongoing, it's constant. It's, every day you're getting a little bit more and a little bit more. You're growing, taking another step, moving forward. There's progress being made. Sanctification is not a one-time thing. It's not, well, I'm saved, then I'm sanctified. Some teach that, that's not biblical. Sanctification is a process. It's a progressive work. Every day you're getting a little bit closer and a little bit closer, or you should be. God is working that in you. He's drawing you closer. He's taking you deeper. He is at work right now, this instance, to transform your life for his glory, to bring you more and more in line with his word. And it's up to us. It's contingent on us. As he is drawing, as he is working, as he is moving, we must present ourselves before him if the sanctification is gonna take its full and desired effect. But why wouldn't we want to take advantage of that? I mean, our salvation is, again, there, there's something about our salvation that we don't really talk about enough. Peter called it a living hope. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3, he says, we've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection. And this living hope is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, as in that every single day that hope in us is alive and well, and it's only getting more and more alive and well. And think about what we've learned in Romans, how Paul talks about we're being made alive in Christ. The Spirit of God is alive in us. So there's something in us that is constantly saying, hey, there's a place I want to take you. There's progress I want to make. There's life I want to give you. Salvation, our salvation is dynamic. Dynamic as in not static. Static means it's unchanging. Dynamic means, hey, there's something growing. There's something changing. There's something building. There's something getting bigger and bigger, better and better. You and I have a live connection to God. There is, you know, when you touch a line that's live, that means a current's flowing through it. And if you touch it without the proper, you know, protection, it'll shock you. Our connection to God is live. There's a current going back and forth, specifically from God to us. We are being held accountable by that connection. We're being encouraged by that connection. And according to Romans 12, we are being transformed by that connection. If you say, yeah, I'm accountable. Yes, I want to be encouraged, but don't take that next step for transformation. You're missing something vital. Salvation is a persistent fellowship with God. And that's what Romans 12 is getting at by telling us that coming before God We've been justified, we've been united. Here's how we can take full advantage of this gift so that we might walk in God's perfect will. Isn't that how verse two ends? That we may prove what is that good, acceptable and perfect will of God. Don't you want to be in the perfect will of God? Who wouldn't say they want to be in the perfect will of God? No one says, well, I just kind of want to be halfway there. I kind of want to just brush up against it every once in a while. I mean, some days that's what the reality is because we're fleshly, we're sinners, we're humans, but we don't desire to be only halfway in or only you know, partially in. We desire to be or should desire to be in the perfect will of God. Well, Paul says, this is how you get there. This is how you stay there. Now, we spent last week talking about the reality of of what the local church means to this and how the local church helps us along in this and how verses three through eight teaches us that if we're going to truly be sanctified, we're going to have to be planted in a church, growing in the body of Christ, fellowshipping with each other in the body of Christ, learning what our gifts are to the benefit of one another, how we are growing in Christ and going for Christ. And the church is an essential part of that process. But I want to back up and touch, a, touch on a few points that we missed 
that really help amplify the general things that come later on in the chapter. The, re, re, the realization of sanctification is particularly tied to our posture before God, that we're never going to be sanctified and stay in that sanctification process. We're never going to experience sanctification if our posture is not as it should be. It would make sense that a Christian would always be in this posture, but of course we need guidance as well. So we need to be reminded of this. And that's why Paul uses that powerful phrase in verse one, present your bodies a living sacrifice. And then he says in verse three, I say through the grace given to me to everyone who is among you, not to think of himself or herself more highly than they ought, but think soberly. So notice the two, the, two, the two ideas here. He says, I want you to be a sacrifice before God. I want you to be humble before God. Present yourself as a sacrifice unto him, as in, hey, I'm here to do your will. I'm here to seek your will and to serve your will. And that's, it's essential that we have a sober mind, as in we know how we got there and we know that there's no reason for us to get up from that posture of sacrifice and say that we you know have you know moved beyond that if we remain sober-minded we are aware of how we got there we're humble because we know that only through the blood of Christ did we even get through the door there's a notion within us uh, that, that we all, that, that salvation is too good, too rich, too great. We live with this constant sense of gratitude and desire to honor God with the life had, that he's given us. And I think the benefit of hearing the gospel again and again, the benefit of studying the book of Romans, the, last, the first you know, half of the book, uh, is that we are constantly reminded of how we get saved, that there is no room for self-righteousness. We are inundated with reminders of grace and mercy, grace and mercy. We've said, we had so many sermons about God's grace, didn't we? And that's a good thing that we hear that again and again so that we know for certain that we only made it because Jesus made a way for us. Part of the secret to remaining humble and dependent on grace, grace and mercy is to come before God sacrificially. And through that posture, we are reminding our flesh, this is a gift of God and I'm forever grateful for it. A few things to go over here, but a lot of times we don't give enough emphasis to the importance of discipline when it comes to our faith. That Paul is telling us to present our bodies as a living sacrifice in the house of God before the people of God. He's not just saying to do this once a week or once a day. This is a lifestyle. And if we're going to have a lifestyle of, 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 of humility, if we're going to have a lifestyle uh, where we are presenting ourselves before God, that's going to require some discipline. Now, we hear the word discipline. We think religion. We think, I don't know about that. I thought this is grace. Let me, let me make this very clear. Discipline and discipleship are pretty much the same word. When Jesus said, follow me, that, that's discipline that's in, required for that to, 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 to be there. Yes, the spirit is drawing us, but discipline is on our part that's, necess that's necessary. Now, I know we immediately start thinking, well, that sounds ritualistic and you know, rituals make you tired and dead and burnt out. And I promise you, I promise you, that if you genuinely seek God with your whole heart, the only reason you will ever get burnt out and tired and feel like there's nothing real is if you follow man and religion and not Jesus. If you follow after religion and follow after man's ways, you will get burnt out in a minute because there's nothing real there. But if you follow Jesus, you will never, ever be emptied and never feel empty. 
If you're just going through some religious motions, you will burn yourself out in a second. But if you're pursuing Jesus, you will never get tired of it. You will never get tired of him. So anything that helps you maintain that discipline and focus your commitment on him is good. That's why Paul says we should be living sacrifices. This is not rules or legalism. This is good discipleship habits. We need that. I need that. Especially on days that we are not feeling it. Listen, there are going to be days that you wake up and you don't feel like doing this. But if you don't have that discipline, I'm going to do it anyway. And you may not get as much out of it on that day that you did the, the day before, but that discipline in you, as you get in the presence of Jesus and you fix your eyes on him, he is more powerful than your emotions. He can break through, but don't, don't take yourself out of that opportunity for him to break through and for him to get a hold of you and get your attention. You know, Jesus told a parable one time and it's kind of dry, it's kind of blunt, it's kind of, it's different than most of his parables. And I think he was grinning when he told it because I think he was he was trying to leave people hanging and trying to get people to ask questions when he told it. He told a parable about people serving a master and how the master was ruthless and the master was cruel and the master never said thank you. But the servants had this attitude, well, we're supposed to be here, so we're going to keep doing it. And even if he never gives us anything for being here, we're never get paid, never get fed, never get a good place to stay, we're going to keep doing it. And at the end of that parable, Jesus kind of puts this bow on it that's kind of, you know, not in line with most of his teaching. But he said this in Luke 17. So you also, when you have done all that you are commanded, say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. And, and, and of course, Jesus by all means taught about the fulfillment of knowing God, the fulfillment of following Jesus, the joy of following him. But here's what he says, that discipline is a, is a core and essential foundation of course, there's incentive. Of course, there's benefits. Of course, there's a delightful experience. But at the core of all that is this determination. We're going to do it every day, whether we feel like it or not, because we know it's the right thing to do. And a Christian, a saved person should have that foundation. And that's the, that's the, the, the essential ingredient for sanctification, because there will be days when you don't feel like taking another step. And an off day is not an option for a Christian. Now, just try to come to Jesus and lay everything down before him and try that and see if you will not be filled with joy and grace. Just try it. I dare you. He will always come through. Now, ultimately, we should do, we should come out of obligation, but remember the Holy Spirit's in you, renewing you, filling you up with life. He's refreshing you constantly, developing good habits, and discipleship will only bolster that even more. We are bringing ourselves to him daily, hourly, moment by moment. Remember Jesus said, take up your cross daily. I think a good picture is the way that God and Samuel first connected. The Bible says that God called out to Samuel and then Samuel responded, speak for your servant hears. That response is so important. And that's what it means to present our bodies a living sacrifice every single day. An essential part of your growth that we keep coming before God and remembering that he is the source and he is our lead. The practice of daily sacrificing our lives to him, checking ourselves with so sobriety is similar to some of the offerings taught in the book of Leviticus. And I wanna give you this analogy before we move on. In the Old Testament, uh, in the book of Leviticus, there's a very convoluted, very thorough description of the sacrificial system. And if you break it down, very simple, very basic, there are primary sacrifices 
and there are secondary sacrifices. The primary sacrifices are the ones that you're aware of. That's the big ones that are made corporately for the whole nation, Passover and then the Day of Atonement, every spring and every fall. It also includes the burnt offerings made every week that you would go to the temple to worship and you would perform a burnt offering at the brazen altar outside of the holy place. Every family would present burnt offerings for themselves for their sins to be forgiven. But secondary offerings were also prescribed in the book of Leviticus. They were not required, they were optional, but they were encouraged if a person wanted to grow in their devotion to God. And there were two kinds of secondary offerings, grain offerings and peace offerings, grain offering and peace offerings. Now the grain offering, if you read it, it kind of sounds wasteful because here's what God would say. Hey, I want you to bring me some grain. I want you to bring me a percentage of your grain, 10% of your grain, you're gonna give that to the priest. They're gonna live off of it and then we're gonna use the rest of it to take care of the poor because there was a welfare system that they would turn around and give to the poor, the widows, the orphans, those that didn't have the things they needed. So the tithing system of ancient Israel was bring the grain to the storehouse. We're gonna feed the priests with it and feed the Levites with it and feed the poor with it. And you bring more. So they really brought 20%. The 10% is really a misnomer. They brought 10% as a tithe and they brought another 10% to literally put on the altar and burn it. Go read it, Leviticus 2. They would put a percentage of their offering on the, on the altar and they would burn it. Well, that's a waste. God required them to bring, or invited them, not required, God invited them to bring a grain offering. And here's what that was about. As they saw their harvest burning to dust, it was God's way of saying, listen, I gave that to you. That's mine. You're not giving it back to me. You're not saying, oh God, look at me. I'm giving you something. That's mine. I gave it to you. I took it from you. Hey, this, it, it was mine to begin with. You're giving that to me. And you're sh I'm showing you, I gave it to you and you have plenty to live off of even with this percentage being burnt up and consumed. So here's what happens when we bring ourselves to God. Sometimes it feels like we're giving something up, doesn't it? It feels like, oh, I don't know if I can live without that. I don't know if I can lay that down. I don't know if I can sacrifice that. And God says, just try it and see if I don't give something to your heart that's so much better than what you had materialistically or what time you gave up, resources you gave up. See if I don't make something in your heart or change something in your heart that is so much better than what you might have given up. Now, the peace offering was different. The peace offering was the option to bring a, an animal sacrifice to God in addition to the other ones that were presented on the brazen offer, altar. But here's the difference about the peace offering. It could be an unclean animal. You say, well, why would God accept an unclean animal? Because we're all unclean. They were already atoned for their sins. The clean animal already forgave them. The unclean animal that they could bring for the, grain offer, the peace offering was a picture of you and I bringing ourselves to God and God saying, just watch and see what I can do with you when you present yourself to me. Just watch it. I will transform you. And isn't that what this invitation is all about? Be transformed by presenting yourselves to God. All about furthering one's devotion and strengthening commitment. And, and if you want this church, and of course you do, Paul is about to give us the clear pathway to getting it. I think the best direct correlation, and that's what verses three through eight are about, is participate in the local church 
And I think the, the way for you as a Christian to stay disciplined in your presenting yourself to God, I think it's about being engaged with God's people, being in community with God's people. I think it's about, about worshiping loudly, giving generously, serving consistently. I think those are vital elements if you want to be sanctified, if you want to grow in your faith. I think these are very core. They're very essential ingredients to that. That's the connection that Paul makes in Romans in verses four through eight. He, he talks about finding your place, using your gift. Down in verse six, he says, having then gifts differing according to the grace that is given to us. God has given you that gift. So what should you do with, some, with a gift that has been given to you by God? You should use it, right? None of what we do in response to God is to try to get something from him, but it's showing him, God, I realize you've given me something. I wanna use it for your glory. I realize that what you began in me, you want to continue until the day of redemption, the day of restoration. This entire process is about responding to what God has done responding to what God has done and growing in our devotion to him. Now, there are false doctrines that, that try to make this all about God doing more for us. This is not about that. This is about God using us and changing us on the basis of what he's already done for us. We're bringing, him, we're bringing back to him what already belongs to him. God owns it all. He owns you, whether we realize it or not, whether we give to him or not. He owns it all. Bringing it back to him, bringing our lives back to him is a way of finding our true calling and our true purpose. Now, I think this preface was important because there are gonna be some commands in this next passage that you will never, I'm gonna, I know I'm being a, little bit, being a little bit absolute there. There are some commands in this next passage that you will never feel like obeying. I mean, you know, check your, your, your pulse if you feel like it, because you probably won't. There are some commands that God says a sanctified Christian should always do. You will never feel like that's the best option, or you probably won't. But these commands are not options for us. They are expectations, but you'll never get to where they are what you desire to do unless you understand the importance of presenting yourself before God every single day as this persistent pursuit of what God wants to do in you. Romans 12, nine is a pretty big verse to get us started. So let's go with that one. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. So, Number one bullet on the sanctified, on what it means to be sanctified. What should a sanctified Christian be doing? Paul says, let's go ahead and get this over with. You are to, above all, love people genuinely. And if you're going to love people genuinely, two things have got to happen. You've got to abhor what is evil within you, get rid of it. And you've got to cling to what is good in you and ask for God to put more in you. You gotta get rid of the evil and replace it with good. That is necessary if you're gonna love people genuinely. Now we'll talk about this for the next few minutes. Genuine love actually cares for people. So why does he say love without hypocrisy? We're not doing this for show. I mean, love is not showing up at church and shaking somebody's hand and pretending to like them. 
I mean, this is to me, not if you feel convicted, hey, I'm, I'm convicted by this too. Love is not looking at somebody and saying, I really don't like you, but I'm going to pretend like it. God sees through that, doesn't he? The Old Testament, God said, put your hands down, put your, you know, don't shake hands, don't raise your hands. I see your hearts. That's not impressing me. Love actually cares. And how do you love people without any hindrance? You remove and replace whatever might be in the way. We're not just here for show. We're not just doing this for looks. Our love must be real and it must be genuine and authentic love for God and his people does two things. It rejects evil and it clings to good. And this specifically refers to inwardly. I'm not saying we don't stand against what's evil outside and that we don't choose good on the outside, but this is inward stuff. This is about what I do for my own heart. Now we started talking about sacrifice. Love is key for there to be a follow through. Remember how the Pharisees were all about sacrifice? Jesus told them, he said, hey, you scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites, you love to tithe every little thing, mint, dull, and cumin, but you've neglected the weightier matters. He said, I see you doing all these sacrifices and you should do that and don't stop doing it. But you have neglected the weightier matters, which is the love that your heart should show to other people and the, 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 the obedience to God in terms of what is just and what shows mercy and what is faithful to your brother and sister. So Jesus said, hey, don't just, be a, don't just present yourself and think that's enough that I want to see that you actually want to follow through. And that's why this genuine love is so important. Remember over in 1 Corinthians where Paul said, if you give your body to be burned, but you don't have love, you're wasting your time. I mean, hey, your body was burned, but what good was that? It was a waste. So part of being a living sacrifice is that we've got to cut loose any evil in our heart. Literally, the Greek, in, in the way the Greek is written, it's kind of, it's written as if it's happening the literal translation is, is be not hypocritical in your love, not choosing evil, but choosing good. That's literally what this verse is saying. So how do you not be hypocritical in your love? Don't choose evil, choose good. So, so what is Paul concerned about here? And this is gonna be a little bit uncomfortable, but we gotta we got do this because sometimes you gotta go through a, a, a narrow space to get to the other side of where you need to go. Paul is concerned that every individual Christian be focused on rejecting evil in their lives and choosing evil for their, choosing good for their life so that they can love genuinely. So what is Paul concerned about for you and for me? That I reject what's evil in me. Notice the emphasis on I and me because sometimes we're really good at identifying the evil in others, but not ourselves, right? That I reject what's evil in me, I cling to what's good in me so that I might love genuinely. Because listen, my being able to love somebody should have nothing to do with who they are and what they're doing. Right? You say, oh, well, I don't know about that, Justin. They're not lovable. What does that mean? If I can't love you, that's not because something's wrong with you. Right? You see why Paul is really getting to, uh, in us in a corner here? That for us to be able to love has nothing to do with other people changing. It is everything to do with us changing. Reject what's evil in me, cling to what's good in me so that I can love genuinely. Now there are people, there are, you know, sometimes with the New Testament, we get a little bit sidetracked. Well, isn't there some mandate in the New Testament that we inspect other people and judge other people? No, there isn't. Church leaders are supposed to do that in terms of the church members. But as Christians, 
as Christians, our focus in terms of other people, specifically church members, brothers and sisters, is how can I love them genuinely? I've got to reject the evil in me. I've got to choose good in me so I might be able to do for them what I, I need to. So how can I love my fellow Christian and church family without hypocrisy? I've got to reject all the evil in my life and cling to all that's good. So th- you might say, well, there's, there's no correlation between what's going on in me and what's going on in them. Well, if maybe there isn't, but that's, doesn't, that's not the point. It's how can I love them? And Paul says, you're never going to love them if there's evil in you. And you're never going to love them until you cling to good for you. So what's evil? Sin is evil, right? So what's evil in us? Greed, envy, jealousy, bitterness, hatred, doubt. Look in the mirror. What is evil in me? Because even if you think, well, that's not keeping me from loving somebody, according to Paul, it is. What is evil in me that might be hindering good in me? So if that evil exists in us, we've got to get rid of that and replace it with what is good. And how does Paul define love in 1 Corinthians? What is kind, what is gentle, what is you know, long-suffering, right? That's what love is. It's kindness and it's gentleness and it's graciousness and it's forgiveness and it's patience. Now here's a life hack. And this, this is very convicting for me. I don't know about y'all. But if I find, if we find it hard to love people genuinely, it's probably because there's something in us that should not be there. If I find it hard to love you, it's because something in me is keeping me from loving you. And there's not enough good in me to to overcome the bad in me that allows me to love you, even if, even if I might say something's wrong with you. Because there's nothing in the Bible about other people being the problem when it comes to love. It's about what's in us. There is something evil in me that's hindering me from, and hindering me from the good to come out. You know why it's hard for me? And let me just be honest with y'all about me. You know why it's hard for me to be generous to some people? It's because I'm greedy. It has nothing to do with what they should have done. It has everything to do with what I want to do. I am not generous with people because I am greedy. You know why it's hard for me to rejoice over people and make and people and be genuinely happy for people? Because I'm jealous and I'm selfish and all I care about is me. I don't have the desire to be happy for you because I'm too focused on me. You know why it's hard for me to be kind to people? Because I've got hatred lodged in my heart and that makes me hateful to people. It has nothing to do with you. It has everything to do with me. You know why it's hard for me to believe the best about people? And you know why I'm so cynical about people? It's because I have allowed doubt to lodge itself in my heart and I doubt what God can do and I don't trust that he can do in you what he's done in me or what I'm pretending he's doing in me. You know why it's hard for me to believe that people can be sincere and don't have ulterior motives? Because I'm not always sincere and I have ulterior motives sometimes. And I get mad when mine don't pay off. Listen, I know that's hard to swallow, but all of this is true. And if we're ever gonna be truly sanctified, this stuff has got to come out of our hearts. And if you find yourself having trouble getting over verse nine, my advice is go back to verse one and two and rinse and repeat. 
rinse and repeat Romans 1, 1 and 2, 12, 1 and 2, again and again and again and again. Get to verse 9, and if there's still evil to get rid of, get rid of it. Go back and get rid of it again and again and again. And eventually, you'll come to verse 10. And when Paul says, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love and honor, giving preference to one another. You know what that means? That means outdoing each other with honor. As in, I'm going to do more for you than you could ever do for me. I'm going to show you that I value you more than you ever could value yourself, more than I value myself. So we end up in a submission competition. If the local church was operating as it should, we would all be so in competition with each other to submit to each other, to love each other, you would never even recognize us because we are all so focused on loving each other and submitting to each other, it would look so otherworldly. Look at verse 11 and 13. Not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. So we're not doing this out of a burden. We're not doing this with a half-heartedness. We're doing it for the Lord. Rejoicing in hope, patient in troubles, continually steadfast in prayer. So yeah, there's bumps in the road, but you push through it. Distributing to the needs of the saints, giving to hospitality. So what is our goal? I'm here for you and you're here for me. We're here for each other. And that goes for beyond these walls as far as I'm concerned. What does sanctification look like? It looks like being completely focused on the needs of other people. When, when we've allowed God to empty us of evil and we've been filled with his love, his love starts changing us, we won't even recognize ourselves. All of this is an overflow of falling in love with Jesus and being driven by his love. And, and again, if you, each verse keeps taking it to another level. Look at verse 14. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. So notice, and again, maybe this makes you uncomfortable, but, but notice how all the attention keeps going off of us onto other people. Do you see that? Am I, am I, I'm not making that up, am I? All the attention is about what can we do for others and suddenly we're less concerned about us and we're more concerned about other people. Oh, somebody just cursed me, no big deal. Somebody cursed you? Well, hey, that's my problem. Somebody hurt you? Let me help you. Oh, don't worry about what they did to me. I'll be fine. Because my focus is not on me. My focus is on you. Look at what he's saying that Christians end up being like. We're unfazed by wrongs done to us, and we're indignant more about what's done to others because we see more about what they need than what we need. And again, if this sounds just completely strange to you, do you see the transformation? Do you see how love is taking over? I mean, what was verse one? What did verse two promise? That would be transformed. I mean, if you read verses nine through verse, verse 15, you see a transformation taking place, don't you? I mean, you see radical love for other people taking over the lives of individuals. You say, well, this doesn't look like people that I know. Well, hey, that's the problem. The church doesn't look like that. Well, maybe that's the problem. Do you notice what's happening? Slowly as evil gets out of us and good in us, as love takes over, suddenly we are far more focused on and concentrated on others instead of ourselves. Who are we becoming more like as the passage goes on? Who are we looking more like 
and behaving more and more similar to as the passage goes on, outdoing one another, not lagging in diligence, distributing the needs, blessing those that curse us, caring more about the needs of others. All of a sudden, who are we transforming into? Into the image of Jesus, right? Suddenly, we are becoming Christ-like. And isn't that the goal of Christianity? That we become more Christ-like? Not just in our holiness, but in our humility and hospitality. This is Christianity. And, and let me just say this, and I'm not talking about other churches, I'm talking about me. It's a shame that eight out of 10 churches have never talked about this and never talk about this. Never preach this stuff. It's just, uh, we don't talk about that. We lie to people and make Christianity about self-gain and self-righteousness. But Paul says, once we begin to be transformed by Jesus and sanctified by Jesus, we're going to look more and more like Jesus. We're going to be able to make a tremendous dent in this world with love. Let me just make this very clear. You know why there's a church today in our world? Because 2,000 years ago, the Roman church and churches alongside it chose to live this kind of lifestyle in the face of a government, and we're about to get into it next week in chapter 13, in the face of a government that was ruthlessly killing anyone that looked like Jesus. And there was a lot that did. You know why women are loved equally to men? Because the first century church loved people enough to spread that new value and spread that new ideal. You know why children are valued instead of being treated like their property or like their animals? Because the first century church loved their world that hated them and were persistent when the world was persecuting them. You know why the values that we take for granted are, are, are just common? Because the first, second, third century church were persistent in loving a world that hated their guts and killed them by the hundreds of thousands. They changed the world through this model. And, and this is where I come down on all this. If this lifestyle doesn't seem desirable to us, to me, it's because Jesus is yet to become our one and only desire. That's the simple truth. Because go back through verses 9 through 16, verses 9 through 15, and think about Jesus for a minute. What did he do for you? He loved you in the place of himself. He contributed to your needs and put aside his needs. He blessed those that persecuted him so that he might save them and save us. He concerned himself with our needs, not his own. He says in verse 16, be of the same mind one to another. Do not set your minds on high things, but associate with the humble. Do not be wise in your own opinion. And I think that's where a lot of us are out of this because we have our own minds made up, don't we? We come to him again and again. Remember what he's done. We give our life to him. He cleanses us. He transforms us. We gain a heart like his. And Verse 17 through 21 are even more difficult to process. Repay no one evil for evil. Have regard for good things in the sight of all men. If it's possible, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men as in as much as long as you have the ball, you drive it down the court with peace. Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but give place to wrath. For it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay. So when you feel like someone's being undone, you're being wronged, let God handle that. And you may not ever see him repay them in, in, in this lifetime, but you're trusting him to do a job that only he can do. 
Because if you dwell on that, it'll just distract you from your mission. That's the whole point. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him drink. Well, no, I'm gonna pray about this, God. If my enemy is hungry, I'm gonna pray because if, unless I really feel the spirit move me, I'm not giving him nothing but a stab, right? But what does it say? If your enemy's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him a drink. By doing so, you'll heap coals of fire on his head. Maybe he'll repent, maybe he won't, but that's up to God. 21, do not be overcome by evil, overcome evil with good. We have two options, church. We can allow the world to make us like it or we can allow God to make us like him. And what is Jesus' ministry all about? It's about overcoming evil with good. If we want to overcome, if we want to overcome the evil of this world, we'll do so with the same good that Jesus clung to, love, forgiveness, humility, and accountability personally to God. I know what people say. How, that's, how is that going to change people? The same way Jesus changed you. Right? The same way Jesus changed you. Jesus did not wait for you to quit sinning. He did not wait for you to become lovable. He loved you anyway. He saved you anyway. And his spirit did the work. Church, we've got to keep our eyes on the goal. We must fix our hearts on, and hearts on Jesus and be full of Jesus. There are a lot, a lot of ideas being promoted about how to keep the church influential and maintain our prominence, how to bring revival. We've got to do what Jesus did. We've got to stay doing what Jesus started. I heard somebody say that Jesus would have stayed alive if, he, if only he had a weapon. Isn't that clueless? That's how clueless people of this world think. That Jesus was weak that he was passive, that he just gave up. He didn't give up, did he? Jesus died with an otherworldly, others first kind of love. That's what he's calling every one of us to be. Listen, I know this is more unpopular than preaching a sermon against immorality in a church full of immoral people, right? People who are deep in sin would deal with a message about sin they're committing a whole lot better than normal Christians deal with a message like this. I understand it because I had to write it. it. Took me a lot longer than most because I don't want to do it. I have a hunch that most of us don't, but this is why we are here, church. And it's how we get forward and go forward. This is sanctification. This is what it means to be sanctified to have an otherworldly, others first kind of love. To be a living sacrifice is to be a loving servant. So let's start that process. It may take a long time and it will, it takes a lifetime. But let us take our first step into heaven one day with this defining us. An otherworldly, others first kind of love. And I promise you, read through this, pray through this, because Romans 13 is going to be very hard. You think that this is hard for me to deal with. I don't know about y'all. This is difficult. Romans 13 is going to be even more difficult because it deals with real world implications of this. But you and I, this is our calling. And if we get down to the nitty gritty, why are we here? Because Jesus loved us and did for us out of the abundance of his heart. That's the only way we're going to change the world. So let's start on our knees. Let me pray for you. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for being honest with us.
Thank you for making it very clear that we're never going to love people if we've got sin in our heart. That the problem with loving people isn't the people being unlovable. It's us not having enough of it. And Lord, maybe, maybe if instead of waiting on other people to become more righteous, if we focused on being righteous, maybe, just maybe, we might actually start making a difference. Because instead of waiting on others to change, we'll be the change. And you will use us to do things that we may never imagine or never could imagine you doing. But we know you're able. Lord, this is all about making us more like Jesus. And we know what Jesus is like. He loves people unconditionally. He gave his life up for people. He put everybody else first. He forgave the very soldiers that hung him on the cross. And that's what you want us to be like. Lord, I'll be honest, there are things in my heart that keep me from loving people. I've got greed and lust and jealousy and bitterness and hatred and doubt. I've got so much stuff in me that keeps me from loving other people. Not because of what they're doing, but because of what's stopping me from being full of your good. So God, I lay all that down and I need to lay it all down every day, every other day, every twice a day. But I lay all that down and I pray that you would replace it all with good so that I might see the goal and not be distracted by the detours. Have your way in our hearts, Lord. We desire you so that you might make us love others. Sanctify us, Jesus. In your name we pray, amen.